character named Xena. We took her to the vet and they're like, that belly button is actually not a belly button. Oh, Wait, it, was was it? A, it was a boy named Xena. He hoarded socks. Welcome to Ghost Riders Anonymous, an inspirational and interactive podcast where we create worlds through words and writing. I'm Kelsey, and today I'd like to know if you were a light fixture, what sort of light fixture would you be? I would be a chandelier with live candles that drip on passerbys. I think I'd want to be one of those industrial looking lamps that have Edison bulbs in it. I just want to be real weird looking. Shine real bright in everybody's eyes. I'm Andrew. I would be a vintage lamp. The base would be made out of amber glass, a brass stem, and a bit taller to contrast the squattiness of the base with tassels. So today I'm going to read from a book called The Willful Princess and the Piebald Prince. It's a story that is in two parts. It's one book, but the first part is about a princess who falls in love. It's a forbidden love with a stable hand. She ends up siring him a bastard son. And then the second part of the book is about that bastard son. And what's interesting about the stable hand is he's known as a horse whisperer. He's really good with creatures and especially temperamental creatures. And so people spin these tales that he loves beasts and that he is connected to beasts. I'm going to read mostly ones from the first part of the book about the princess and then the stable hand. And then there's a little bit I want to say about their son who wasn't raised by his parents because both his parents parents end up dying. There's a festival in town and so all these people bring their horses to trade and sell and so they describe this particular trader that has a very eccentric horse. It was not just in men that the queen-in-waiting, which is the princess, caution, would listen only to herself but also in horse flesh. It happened in Buckkeep one summer in that time when all bring horses and cattle to trade and breed that a Chalcidian trader came likewise with his wares. On a ship he brought them for at that time, Shokes was so wroth with the Duke of Chalcid that the Duke would not suffer any Chalcidian folk to cross his lands. This traitor was a sly fellow, far too thin for an honest man, with a patch on one eye and a wet way of talking so Ugh. that he hissed like a spitting snake when he spoke. All turned a wary eye on him, and little he sold that first day. So I noticed, for I was there, sent by Queen-in-waiting Caution herself, to look over the cattle and the the horse fair that year and bring back news of anything worth seeing. Now among his wares, this odd trader had a spotted horse, not dappled, not speckled, mind you, but blotted in gray, ugly spots, like a fruit that had been taken blight, or a poorly dyed blanket, or a milk cow. Black and white he was, with a rolling blue eye on one side of his head, and a dark staring one on the other. Big was this beast, and a stud, unruly of temper, screaming out his challenges to any stallion that came near, and snuffing and stamping at every passing mare. He was a nuisance and a danger, and twice the guards had to be called to quell the beast. They warned the Chalcidian that he had best keep his horse to rights or he would be thrown out of the fair. But each time when the guards arrived, they found the spotted stud standing docile as a lamb, and at his head holding his halter, a youth of strange mien. He was not garbed well, 
will, but rather as a servant and a ragged one at that. He was silent in his ways, his eyes always cast down, and he spoke few words, fair or ill, to the guards, for when he did speak, he stuttered so that it took him three times as long to say whatever he had in his mind as it should have. Only to the horse he spoke frequently, in a breath so soft none could make out the words, but always the rambunctious horse turned docile as an old mare at his utterances. Things are said of him now that none know if they are true or not, that he never in his days ate meat, but often was seen standing beside his horse, chewing a stem of grass. Some say the nails of his hands were as thick and yellow as a horse's hooves. Others, that his laugh was a whinny, and that when he was angered, he pawed at the earth and stamped. I can say with absolute certainty that many of the things now said of him are rankest nonsense, and only spoken aloud to justify all that came afterward. So she sends her mistress because she feels like this might be something she'd be interested in, and they end up letting go their stable master because the stable master has a rift with this boy, and then he becomes the stable master. I might read an excerpt when she encounters him at the market, just so you can see their dynamic. She's with a gaggle of friends. They're making fun of all the tradesmen and their horses. Oh, this guy has a stallion whose belly's bigger than the pregnant mare. And so they're all just making these jokes to kind of win favor of the queen-in-waiting. And so when they see the piebald horse, they start to make fun of the horse. But, but the she, queen loves it. <laughs> well, yeah, she calls him off because she's struck dumb with this guy and it's love at first sight for her. At last they came, the queen-in-waiting and her entourage, to the Chalcidian trader and his blotchy horse. The beast was peaceful that day, for the tight-lipped man who tended it stood at its head. When Caution and her ladies drew near, he looked up at her and his eyes were full of wonder as if he had never seen a woman before. Despite his poor clothes, he was a handsome man, well-muscled, tall, and raven-haired. When the queen-in-waiting glanced at him, he blushed like a maid and sank to one knee before her, bowing his head, and his thick black hair fell like a mane, cloaking him from her gaze. The fall of his hair bared the nape of his neck, and it was pale and downy as an infant's. Stop, said Caution to her ladies. There is something here I wish to look at. One of the ladies, thinking to prove her wit, pointed at the stud and said, Oh, so that's what became of that blanket with the holes burned in it. They've used it to make a horse. Another vying for favor said, No, not at all. Tis but a spotted cow with a horse's halter on his head. A third said, Behold, not a cow nor a blanket, but a white cheese gone to black mold. All laughed far louder than such jests merited, expecting to win queen-in-waiting cautions laughter as well. But instead, she spoke in a terrible voice, harsh and cold. Silence, you fools. Never before have I beheld a creature as perfect as this one. But when she spoke, her eyes were not on the stallion, nor on his Chalcidian owner, but instead on the young man who gripped the spotted stud's halter. There and on that spot, she declared that she would buy the beast. When the deal was closed and the gold passed, she had bought not just the spotted stud, but the man who held his halter. And this, despite the laws of the six duchies against the buying or selling of a man, slave he had been to the Chalcidian, but she in that moment raised him to free man and servant. His name was Lossler. The king starts to notice that his daughter is going out riding more and has a bit of an interest in this man that she shouldn't for a queen in waiting. And she has these suitors that come to court her and she has no interest in them. So he forces her to go on a fox hunt with one of them without being in the presence of the stable hand 
or the stable master at this point because typically he'll saddle a horse and ride out with her. And he did have a horse for her, but she wanted to master riding the piebald horse. And so since they're connected in spirit, it was spoke about that he would get shivers whenever she would ride his horse because the thought is that she was riding him. Oh my God. <laughs> Which they did do that later. Hence really? she had a bastard son. That's how babies are made. We'll leave that in the smut episode. Essentially on the day of this fox hunt where the stable master is not allowed to go, he saddles the horses and everything, but this huge fog is covering the land and she out of spite outrides all of the hunters and then they can't find her. <gasps> Oh no. So they have to send the stable master to go find his horse because he says, I know how to find him. When they come back, it's just her and the stable master and she has twigs in her hair and everything. Oh my God. Yeah, she's like, oh, I fell off my horse. But her servant notices that she's not limping and that she has color to her cheeks and that she's very merry and (laughs) humming in her bath. As soon as their love affair starts, it ends because it only ends in trouble. When all the hunters come back, this is an utterance that people claim Lostler had said that confirms their suspicions that he speaks to beasts. They call it having the wit. Now I have heard some minstrels say that he stood in the stable yard and proclaimed I will find her most swiftly for where the spotted stud is there too am I. And even in the mist our hearts call to one another. Thus it is claimed that with his own tongue he admitted his beast magic. Though in those days there was small shame and little danger in only to it. But I was there and he spoke no such words. He never called attention to himself or his stuttering tongue, so never would he have made such a public announcement. So they think he has this magical power to talk to this horse, essentially. There's the idea if you have what they call the wit, you and your animal have a communication. Like a familiar? It's like they're connected at the soul. They share flesh and blood. It talks later on about how if someone dies and their animal is left alive, it kind of goes mad and vice versa. If someone slays their animal, then the person can go mad because they aren't whole anymore. Now let the truth be told. Lossler was a man with what some folk thought a gift in those days. He could whisper in the tongues of beasts and so bend nearly any animal to his will. Some call this magic the wit and some speak of such a man as having the old blood, the blood that beasts and men once shared. It was no shame in those days not for one to have the wit, nor for one to use it. Some folks said then that much good could come of that magic. Certainly in the year that followed, it is true that both horses and dogs in the stables prospered, and many a sickly beast was cured, and many a vicious animal made gentle. Many and many a spotted foal was born, for the blood of the spotted stud proved strong when mingled with the buck keep stock. One thing that got the king angry was the piebald stallion was getting loose and knocking up all the mares. Knocking up all the mares. They put it so eloquently I forget what it was. (laughs) Then all these piebald horses are born and then later on lots of those piebald horses share a creature wit with some other person in the kingdom. It doesn't really say how this connection is made. Do they meet and it happens? Are they born that way? Are they born at the same instant? How do you end up sharing a wit with a beast? Maybe it's dragon rules and they can soul bond if they choose to. Oh, interesting. What is that from? That concept from? Rick and Morty. (laughs) (laughs) 
and oh, the yeah. movie called Dragonheart. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. yeah. I haven't watched But that he movie. actually shared his heart with that man to save him. Somehow. We talked about this on another episode, how this man became impaled on a blade on a pillar and the dragon gave him part of his heart, which ended up being the dragon's demise. I like the idea of sharing a soul with a creature. There's something about that that seems very special to me, even transcending sharing a soul with another person. There is something quite magical about them. There's some steer. And unknown. That reminds me of the Golden Compass where they have their daemons. It's actually a representation for their soul. And if the person dies, their daemon dies. But if the daemon dies, the person doesn't necessarily die, but it can cause them to lose it. They're not themselves anymore. But yeah, and I think I had seen that movie prior to reading this book. Mm-hmm. When I was reading this book, I thought that exact same thing. It is precisely the same. They can survive without their Owner. companion, yeah. but it's almost like they're dead anyway. A vacant soul wandering the earth. If I fast forward to their son. The queen pretty much dies soon after giving birth and at that point the stable master is already done. He was murdered and his horse was murdered and so she kind of loses her will to live so after she gives birth to the son and the midwives are folding their lips in because the baby looks very strange. What is this clumsiness? You have not cleaned him. He is covered still in my blood. Look how it clings to his face. The midwife did not speak. Not from her lips ever came those tidings. It was the assistant who said, May it please my queen, your son is as he is marked, red and white, piebald as a puppy. It pleases me not, Caution cried wildly. Wash him, wash him clean for me. And then it was that I took the babe from her hands and undid his wrappings that we might look on him. But it was as the midwife's aide had said. He was mottled with red splotches that stood up from his pale flesh. So he is marked with the piebald. What's interesting is people whisper that the same places that he's modeled or blotched are the same places where his father had been stabbed and where his horse had been stabbed so it was almost like a curse. He was kind of observed that way. So basically he has these wine stain markings on him? Is that Mm -hmm. what it is? They almost remind me of burns or something Hmm. on him but that's just how his skin looks. He eventually becomes a king in waiting. His court when he is eventually made king is made up of people who have the wit. And so his kingdom, even though he's a good ruler, has a lot of resentment because they believe that it is a curse or that's lesser born people taking over the throne. And it turns into a bit of a civil war where some of the people who feel like he doesn't deserve the title of the king, being a bastard son, slay part of his court and their creature wards. It describes how he was unaffected by this because he kept his creature ward close to the breast. When he was a baby, these birds would come in and sit by his crib. Dogs would follow him around when he was a kid walking around the village. He also is really good with horses. They have a talent to speak to all beasts, but there's one that they share their heart with or their soul with. I don't know if he knew about his father's demise, but for whatever reason, maybe just since he's king, he's a bit of a strategist. He only told a few individuals what his creature ward is or who it is. So the king in waiting, his name is Charger. It must be told here that although Charger's favorite spotted mount was slain, the piebald prince was not unmanned by it. He grieved as any horseman would, and for his witted fellows he was full of sympathy and solicitation, but if the coward who slew horses in their stalls had hoped to wound the prince that way, he failed, for his horse was not his wit beast, as had been long supposed. The beast that shared Prince Charger's heart and mind was a matter he kept 
very private, and even among his witted followers, few were trusted with the knowledge of which creature shared its life with the king-in-waiting. So yes, he was angry that not only did he lose people of his court, but also their animals, which yeah. I wouldn't say it rendered them useless, but it was a very deep grief. His creature, it hints at, is a raven. As cool. it goes, he ends up being a victim of regicide when he is overthrown and slaughtered because people believe he's not worthy of this position despite him being a good king. A raven flies into the castle and is screaming and cawing and it's swooping at people and it's just acting wild and it's seen throughout different points of this man's life. When he goes from prince to king, as the king dies, people say, oh, there was a raven sitting by his bedside. Here it talks about, from the beginning, his wit-beast tendencies. Now, from the beginning, Charger had from his father the tongue of the beasts. This was a magic that in those days some folk owned to having with no shame, for at that time the degradations it might lead to were not well known. So folk would openly claim the wit, and some made their living from having it, as hunt masters and beast healers and swine herds and the like. And the piebald prince had the wit in plenty. Humans might shun him for the patches that marred his face and body, but not the beasts. They came to him as bees to nectar. Birds came through the windows to perch on the edge of his cradle. This is a truth I will swear to, for I saw it myself. There was no lapdog that would not leave its master's side to run at the boy's heels. Cats trailed him as he grew. There was not a horse in the stable he could not ride. All of this he accepted as his due. And so again, they're not ashamed of it because they see it as a strength. What I like most about it is how paralleled their stories are, how it talks about his parents' love story, and then how it goes into his life, and then his ultimate betrayal. Especially how he is so noble, that despite what people think of him, it doesn't break his stride in how he is going to rule a kingdom. That sounds like a really good story, though. It is a good story. It's such an easy, simple read. I really enjoyed it. You guys want to know how to befriend a crow? Yes. Or one way to help get their trust? Because you can't usually get very close to them before they'll fly off. If you turn your back to them, that shows that you're a friend so they'll let you get a little bit closer. Interesting. Learned that on TikTok. <laughs> Another thing that I learned on TikTok that kind of relates to this, the boy was born with markings. This isn't exactly related, but it was a experiment done on mice. They would have the scent of cherry blossoms and then they would shock the mice whenever they had that scent. So they associated that with pain. pain. So eventually when they stopped shocking them, they would be just terrified of that smell. Well, that continued even several generations deep Whoa. so it's a remnant so maybe your fears aren't your own maybe they're remnants from your past i've been thinking about this a lot because i actually read that book that they had recommended a <laughs> psalm for the wild built my favorite part was the remnants people had said things like oh i have a fear of drowning and so i wonder is that a remnant fear maybe one of your ancestors drowned it can carry on for who knows how long which we had talked about that in one episode long ago about how maybe that's how you died in a past life in the book, it talks about how these robots, instead of updating what already exists, they pull parts from all of these robots to make new ones, which reminds me of people. When you're born, you share genes with both your mother and father, mm -hmm. and so you're a piece of them, and then your kids are a piece of you, but also them, and it just moves on down the line. Yeah, you're just made up of genetic history. And so this robot is talking about how he enters into this old industrial building that he himself has never been to 
but he doesn't like it because he has a remnant feeling. He shares a part with a robot that, for whatever reason, maybe it was... experience or something there. Or yeah, maybe it was a robot in the factory and it just didn't like being another cog in the wheel. Mm. And so he gets a remnant feeling that he doesn't like it and doesn't want to be there, so he doesn't linger. Moss Cap is informing sibling Dex about remnants and how these robots are made. Moss Cap gestured at its body with professional deliberateness. My components are from factory robots, yes, but those individuals broke down long ago. Their bodies were harvested by their peers who reworked their parts into new individuals, their children. And then when they broke down, their parts were again harvested and refurbished and used to build new individuals. I'm part of the fifth build. See, look. It lay its metal hand on its stomach. My torso was taken from small quail nest, and before them it belonged to blanket ivy and otter mound and termites. And before that, it opened up a compartment in its chest, switched on a fingertip light, and illuminated the space within. Decks peeked inside and their eyes widened. There was an official-looking plate bolted in there, worn with time but kept clean with meticulous care. 643-I4G, it read, property of Weskin Textiles, Inc. So I thought that was interesting just because, as I had said earlier, we're all a piece of our forefathers. When you talk about the mice and the orange blossom, about remnants, if you're sharing flesh, why not share a mind? I think we're all the same person. You think so? Yeah. I think it's very Small components of? Do you think it's a genetic thing or do you think it's a learned thing from your ancestors? We live on a farm. Mm -hmm. We grew up in a creek, on a lake. My mom was always scared of snakes and she was always like, stay away from the edges of the lake. Don't crawl up on the rocks over there. Now I pass that on to my kids and I have a healthy fear of snakes. I don't have a phobia. Regardless, I do have a healthy fear of climbing up on rocks on the ledge of a creek and I have bestilled my children that healthy fear. I think there's a difference in not wanting to do something because you were told not to versus Mm -hmm. not wanting to do something because deep down you feel like you shouldn't. And so I think you can be told not to do something but if you have a fear of it or a hesitancy, I do believe that that is a genetic trait. Which another book that explores this is this prehistoric series about the time where humans versus not apes but the prehistoric man that still has mostly ape in them. Homo erectus. Is that true? (laughs) Is that really what they're called? The human mind learns, if I touch this, it's hot, but the homo erectus has the remnant of, I'm not going to touch this because it will burn. It goes into how different their brains are shaped versus Mm -hmm. ours. And it's a historical fiction. I don't know if she is an archaeologist or she just is interested in the history of archaeology, but she just talks about how that's a huge thing in the book. Eventually their race ends because of our forward thinkingness versus their backward thinkingness if you think about it because they have all these memories filed away they don't have to teach their young the same way they already know what to do whereas the human race they're born and they have to be taught everything so it's a lot of work that you have to put in initially yeah but then from there it's like short-sightedness versus far-sightedness mm-hmm. they can see a bigger picture or plan for a future versus the other the homo erectus they can't they're 
They're just not designed that way. From that entire series, that stuck with me, and I always apply that to other things that I read, honestly. A baby horse is born and they can walk within 30 minutes of being alive, but my kid, I had to teach her how to walk. I went to college with a girl that she didn't know her dad, and her mother caught her writing a letter one day, and she said, where'd you learn to write like that? And she said, I've always written like this. Well, her mom got an old letter from her father that she had never met, and she put them side by side, and she said, you have the exact same writing as him. To her, the most comfortable way to hold the pen was maybe the same way that he held it. Yes, there is nature and nurture, but I attribute a lot to nature in the forming of somebody. I think what's so fun about that topic is it's so debatable. It is. I want to hear about your book. Jungle book. It also kind of touches on remnants, I think, a little bit. So I've got three different excerpts from The Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling. If you haven't ever read The Jungle Book, it's about this boy who is essentially raised by wolves in the jungles of India, was initially hunted by this tiger, Shere Khan, and Shere Khan basically vows, you will be mine. This kind of an adventure between Mowgli and his jungle animal friends. I'm going to read the first interaction between his mom, Raksha, and him, and his father, Wolf. But I think Raksha's a badass mom. I read this <laughs> book a long time ago. I read it the same summer that I read Gay Neck. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. That spring in French class, we had talked about the painter painted all these really cool jungle paintings and tigers. From there, I read the Jungle Book. I used to read it all the time when I was a kid, but I haven't read it probably since middle school. It was one of my all-time favorite books. The beginning of the book starts out that Mother Wolf and Father Wolf are in their den. They can hear Shere Khan, who he's kind of an outcast anyway. He was even nicknamed the Lame One by his mother. They can hear him hunting for something in the woods. They also call him a cattle hunter. He's just very disgraceful. They can hear that he's missed it. Whatever he was hunting, he sounds frustrated. Father can hear something coming up the hill, and so he's prepared to leap on it. Before he can jump on it, he he says, a man's cub, look! Directly in front of him, holding on by a low branch, stood a naked brown baby who could just walk. As soft as dimpled a little Adam has ever came to a wolf's cave at night. He looked up into Father Wolf's face and laughed. Is that a man's cub? Said Mother Wolf. I have never seen one. Bring it here. A wolf accustomed to moving his own cubs can, if necessary, mouth an egg without breaking it. And though Father Wolf's jaws closed right on the child's back, not a tooth even scratched the skin as he laid it down among the cubs. How little, how naked, and how bold! said Mother Wolf softly. The baby was pushing his way between the cubs to get close to the warm hide. He is taking his meal with the others, and so this is a man's cub. Now, was there ever a wolf that could boast a man's cub among her children? I have heard now and again of such a thing, but never in our pack or in my time, said Father Wolf. He is altogether without hair, and I could kill him with the touch of my foot. But see, he looks up and is not afraid. The moonlight was blocked out of the mouth of the cave, for Shere Khan, great square head and shoulders were thrust into the entrance. Tabaki, which is the hyena, behind him was squeaking, My lord! My lord! It went in there! Shere Khan does us great honor, said Father Wolf, but his eyes were very angry. What does Shere Khan need? My quarry! A man's cub went this way, said Shere Khan. Its parents have run off. Give it to me. Shere Khan had jumped at a woodcutter's campfire, as Father Wolf had said, and was furious from the pain of his burned feet. But Father Wolf knew the mouth of the cave was too narrow for a tiger to come in by. 
even where he was, Shere Khan's shoulders and forepaws were cramped for want of room, as a man's would if he tried to fight in a barrel. The wolves are a free people, said Father Wolf. They take orders from the head of the pack and not from any striped cattle killer. The man's cub is ours, to kill if we choose. Ye choose, and ye do not choose. What talk of this of choosing? By the bull that I killed, am I to stand nosing into your dog's den for my fair dues? It is I, Shere Khan, who speak. The tiger's roar filled the cave with thunder. Mother Wolf shook herself clear from the cubs and sprang forward, her eyes like two green moons in the darkness, facing the blazing eyes of Shere Khan. And it is I, Raksha, the demon, who answers. The man's cub is mine, Lungri. Mine to me. He shall not be killed. He shall live to run with the pack and to hunt with the pack. And in the end, look you, hunter of little naked cubs, frog eater, fish killer. He shall hunt thee. Now get hence, or by the sambur that I killed, I eat no starved cattle. Back thou goest to thy mother, burned beast of the jungle. Labor than ever thou camest into the world. Go. Father Wolf looked on amazed. He had almost forgotten the days when he won Mother Wolf in fair fight from five other wolves, and when she ran in the pack and was not called the demon for compliment's sake. Shere Khan might have faced Father Wolf, but he could not stand up against Mother Wolf, for he knew where he was, she had all the advantage of the ground and would fight to the death. Mother Wolf basically decided that this cub was her own. Is it a conquest for her? She is a very motherly figure. She just stood up to a tiger and get out of my cave. It's my kid now. He talks about how he was the lame child. I wonder what it is about him that makes him weak. He's weak-willed or because he has a deformity. Sounds like he'll just kill anything. Whatever's yeah, easiest. He will because his mother did not call him Lungry the Lame One for nothing. He has been lame in one foot from birth. That is why he has only killed cattle. Now the villagers of the Wangunga are angry with him. That was why he was so close is because he had hunted at these other villages and taken their cattle. And so now he came to this other village that's close to where the wolves are. And the wolves are upset because they're like, they're going to think that it was us. And so he's putting the blame on them. So maybe they're not going to look for him. He's eaten men, which is forbidden. One of the jungle laws is that you can kill a man, but only if you're showing your young how to hunt. But you can't kill him for sport, essentially. So they take Mowgli to this council meeting. There's a pack and they live in this giant rock that houses hundreds of wolves. Once every full moon, the wolves bring their young there to be examined by the pack leaders and the fellow pack members. And they can say, yeah, we'll accept you into the pack, blah, blah, blah. Once the wolf cubs were walking, they were mobile and Mowgli was kind of mobile. He ended up taking them forward to the pack to have them voted on because they're asking who will speak for you or who will speak for them and da, 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 da. And this is his first interaction with Bagheera and Baloo. It's the way that Bagheera is described in this because Bagheera is very cunning. He's very smart. Who speaks for this cub? Said Akila, the head of the pack. Among the free people who speaks, there was no answer and Mother Wolf got ready for what she knew would be her last fight if things came to fighting. Because if nobody speaks for him, they'll kill him. Then the only other creature who is allowed at the pack council, Baloo, the sleepy brown bear who teaches the wolf cubs the law of the jungle. Old Baloo, who can come and go where he pleases because he eats only nuts and roots and honey, rose up on his hind quarters and grunted, The man's cub? I speak for the man's cub. There is no harm in a man's cub. I have no gift of words, but I speak the truth. Let him run with a pack and be entered with the others. I myself will teach him. We need yet another, said Akila. Baloo has spoken and he is our teacher for the young cubs. Who speaks besides Baloo? A black shadow dropped down into the circle. It was Bagheera, the black panther, inky black all over, but with the panther marking showing up in certain lights like the pattern of watered silk. Everybody knew Bagheera and nobody cared to cross his path 
path, for he was as cunning as tobacco, as bold as the wild buffalo, and as reckless as the wounded elephant. He had a voice as soft as wild honey dripping from a tree, and a skin softer than down. O Akela, and ye of the free people, I have no right in your assembly, but by the law of the jungle says that if there is a doubt, which is not a killing matter in regards to a new cub, the life of that cub may be bought at a price. And the law does not say who or who may not pay that price. Am I right? Good, good, said the young wolves who were always hungry. Listen to Bagheera, the cub can be bought for a price. It is the law. Knowing that I have no right to speak here, I ask your leave. Speak then, cried twenty voices. To kill a naked cub is shame. Besides, he may make better sport for you when he is grown. Baloo has spoken in his behalf. Now to Baloo's word, I will add one bull, a fat one, newly killed, not half a mile from here. If you will accept the man cub according to the law. Is it difficult? There was a clamor of scores of voices saying, What matter? He will die in the winter rains. He will scorch in the sun. What harm can a naked frog do us? Let him run with the pack. Bagheera basically buys Mowgli with this dead bull. And so he gets raised by Baloo and Bagheera. It skips forward a few years where it's talking about Mowgli going and taking the red flower, which is fire from the village. And so he goes and steals some of it. He scares the shit out of some kid doing it. The things they used to put in people's blankets, they put holes in it and they'll stick it in there at night to keep warm. So he goes down into this village looking through windows trying to find a red flower and he grabs one of those coal things and as he was running with this thing they'd never seen this kid before he's butt naked. <laughs> and like, <laughs> he probably didn't smell too good either. Probably not. <laughs> so, didn't have any teepee out in the woods. <laughs> he was like I knew what the red fire eats and so he was feeding it little branches and stuff. Bagheera basically told him Shere Khan has gotten the ears of the young wolves of the pack and is manipulating them into believing that having a human there is bad news. Akila, who accepted him into the pack, is getting old now. Whenever he misses his kill, that's whenever he is done with the pack, he can be killed. Because Bagheera had told him that the pack was essentially falling apart and that whenever his younger wolves take over, he was going to get eaten by Shere Khan. When Bagheera goes down to plead his case about mm-hmm. the bargain, it talks about how the young wolves are swayed. They're like, yeah, yeah, give it to Bagheera. It was interesting to me because the author made a point to show how easily swayed the younger members were. Whenever they skip to Mowgli going to steal the fire, Mowgli's now a teenager. Shere Khan is whispering to them in the background, who are you to let him boss you around? He's not a part of Mowgli's like, but you're not either. Mowgli stands up to him. When you mentioned the red flower, I thought back onto King Louis' song in the Mm -hmm. Disney movie where he's talking about man's red flower. In the books, they don't actually have a leader in the monkeys. There's no King Louis? No, I don't think so. I need to reread it. Initially, there's no king. Mowgli likes them because they walk on two legs like he does. They have hands like he does. But it's kind of shameful to talk to them because they don't have laws. And they are high up in the trees. So a lot of the jungle creatures don't care to look up at them. It's taboo to interact with them. Lawless rapscallions swinging through the trees. They are! And they kidnap Mowgli while he's sleeping between a bear and a panther. So they give no fucks about anything, really. They kidnap him for sport. They do want to be like him. They are trying to entice him. Oh, we're gonna make you our leader. You're more like us, man cub. And then Baloo. I always picture Baloo as a laid back, lazy Mm -hmm. uncle. Well, he's a sloth bear. Oh, is he? The newer movie he is. Does it talk about how in the book Mowgli, does he ever get a yearning, especially if he's going into villages to take the red fire Mm -hmm. from them, does he ever have a longing to be a part of them? Mother wolf and father wolf are like, we're gonna send you away for now to the man Man village. village. Yeah, that's where you're gonna spend your time, but whenever you become a man 
man come back to the jungle. Remember the laws of the jungle. Is it Amish or Mennonite when they're 15? Rumspringa. Rumspringa, yeah. Yeah, where they send them out to make a decision and then they can either come back. Yeah, they basically can go and do whatever they want for a period of time. I think, is it like a year or just a few weeks? I don't know. So he does go to a man village. Yeah, and then he comes back. He faces off with Shere Khan. He has this fire and whaps Shere Khan with it. Whaps him. Whaps him. He lights the stick on fire and just in the face. Whaps Shere Khan with it. Whaps him. Whaps him in the face. Whaps him. Whaps him. Whaps Shere Khan with it in the face. Whaps Shere Khan with it. Whaps him. Whaps him in the face. Whaps him. Whaps him. Whaps Shere Khan with it in the face. Does it say why he comes back? Does he just not feel like he belongs in the man village? Mowgli's hurt. Because Bagheera warned him prior to this happening. He said, this is going to happen. They are going to kick you out. The man village or the wolves? The wolves. Because Shere Khan wants you and he has the ear of the younger wolves. He is going to come get you. You need to be prepared for that. And Mowgli's like, but I've pulled thorns from all their paws, combed burrs from their fur. They are all brother except for blood. Then Bagheera explains to him, if Mowgli looks them in the eyes, all of the animals will avert their gaze. As in an act of dominance? Act of submission to him. But he doesn't realize that it's because they do have some sort of ingrained fear of him. Maybe it's remnants. It's remnants. From <laughs> their ancestors getting got. Getting got. We're going to stretch out a Psalm for the Wild build. <laughs> It's, it's like 147 <laughs> pages, but somehow it's going to insert itself in every episode here on out. <laughs> okay, so he stands up to Shere Khan. At last, there were only Akila, Bagheera, and perhaps 10 wolves. This is after him swinging this fire around that had taken Mowgli's part. Then something began to hurt Mowgli inside him as he had never been hurt in his life before. And he caught his breath and sobbed and the tears ran down his face. What is it? What is it? He said, I do not wish to leave the jungle and I do not know what this is. Am I dying, Bagheera? No, little brother. That is only tears such as men use. Now I know thou art a man and a man's cub no longer. The jungle is shut indeed to thee henceforth. Let them fall, Mowgli. They are only tears. So Mowgli sat and cried as though his heart would break and he had never cried in all his life before. Now, he said, I will go to men but first I must say farewell to my mother. And he went to the cave where he lived with Father Wolf and he cried on her coat while the four cubs howled miserably. They told him he needed to go. He was crying tears of man. Animals don't do that. So now you have to go to the village and then you need to come back. They tell uh, him that because he's crying? They just now notice well, this big difference? They tell him that after he sheds man's tears and they're like, okay, you have to leave and then whenever you're a man, come back and you can kill Shere Khan. That's now taking over the pack. They exile him because he's crying? Well, yeah, essentially. What? And But also because Shere Khan will fucking kill him. And so will the other wolves of the pack. So they're using that as an excuse to exile him? I don't think they're using it as an excuse. I think they do it for his safety because Shere Khan vowed that he was going to eat that kid. But why are they telling him because you have shed tears, which is a human trait, you need to go live with the humans for a time? Personally, I think it's because he's slowly becoming a man. It's showing that he's more human than they are. So maybe he needs to go live amongst the humans for a while and then come back after he's learned how to be a man. How to shut down his feelings. <laughs> become a robot. Become a killer. The huh. Terminator, but for tigers. I have a lot to think about on that, but it seems strange. Maybe it'd be different rereading it 
as text, but I just wonder why that is the point of breaking. Mm -hmm. He doesn't look anything like them. He has no natural defenses other than his mind. So that's why why they wanted him in the first place is man is smarter than they are and they kind of view him as top of the food chain, raising man in the jungle. For Mother Wolf, I feel like it was just, look, there's a man cup here and I've raised him myself. I think she liked the notoriety. I think she did. Or the novelty of. I think she did, but I think she also saw that he wasn't afraid of them and that really made her admire him in a way. And Mm -hmm. so that was another reason that she was like, we'll keep him. That is interesting though because animals have eyes, so Mm -hmm. do their eyes not water if something's in them? You know, I wonder why is crying a human emotion? Because animals do cry, they just don't shed tears. And they do specify that you are shedding tears. Yeah, Mowgli has never had any kind of hurt in his life. Prior to that, he'd never been shown any facial expressions by other people because he's not seen them since he was a baby. And that's true too. And I also believe, uh, I know kids are resilient. And when it talks about, hey, you're starting to come into manhood. So let's say he's going through puberty. So he has Mm -hmm. all these hormones, which would trigger some sort of emotional response. And a lot of kids, whenever they're growing up, they do watch your facial expressions and they will copy your facial expressions. And that's how they learn. Whenever he was growing up, he just saw wolves and panthers and blue. He just grew up without knowing what these facial expressions were. And then all of a sudden he's weeping because he stood up to this tiger with this stick that was on fire and swung it at him. The pack was disowning him and Akila was going to die because he'd missed his kill and huge overwhelming thing. And so all of a sudden I feel like it is almost a remnant where it's triggered inside him where he starts crying. The physical response. Yeah. I'm sure he experienced all kinds of crazy shit while he was a baby and into adolescence and being a teenager. Experienced all kinds of traumatic events. He's old enough now that that emotion registers with him and he just reacts by crying. I would love to encounter somebody that was raised by wolves in the wild. Just to observe how different they are. He's not cued in on facial expressions. Would that wow him when he's amongst his own people observing for the first time human emotion splayed across the face? And body language is totally different. Would it be a sensory overload for him? He only speaks languages of the jungle. I think that could be to his benefit how people double speak what they say isn't exactly what Mm -hmm. they mean. He doesn't need to know what they're saying to understand in their body language what they're trying to tell him. So that could put him ahead of the game. I think he could be very perceptive. Oh, of who would mean him harm and who wouldn't. Yeah, and I just think he would have a very primitive understanding of life and I'm very enchanted by that. I'm sure there's a documentary somewhere of someone being raised by wolves. There is. It's called Tarzan. (laughs) (laughs) He's not raised by wolves, is he? The twins that were raised by a mom wolf. Are you talking about the legend? Romulus and Remus, I believe. Yeah, that sounds about right. And I think it was based on a true story of what this village had observed or what they believed had happened to these twin boys. I know there's local legends of a baby getting lost in the woods and she was found feral and covered in hair, all kinds of stuff. So after he had this confrontation with Shere Khan and the pack, it skips back again to a time when he was learning the law of the jungle from Baloo. Bagheera would be my absolute favorite mentor. Bagheera is quite the worry word, but he is a good mentor. I think he's wise. I kind of like Akila. He's leader of the pack. He's my runner up. Baloo, I don't know if I can handle. The big, serious, old brown bear was delighted to have so quick a pupil, for the young wolves will only learn as much as the law of the jungle as applies to their own pack and tribe, and run away as soon as they can repeat the hunting verse. Feet that make no noise, eyes that can see in the dark, ears that can hear the wind 
wins in their lairs, and sharp white teeth. All these things are the marks of our brothers, except Tabaki the jackal and the hyena whom we hate. But Mowgli, as a man-cub, had to learn a great deal more than this. Sometimes Bagheera the Black Panther would come lounging through the jungle to see how his pet was getting on, and would purr with his big head against a tree while Mowgli recited the day's lesson to Baloo. The boy would climb almost as well as he could swim, and swim almost as well as he could run. So Baloo, the teacher of the law, taught him the wood and water laws, how to tell a rotten branch from the sound one, how to speak politely to the wild bees when he came upon a hive of them 50 feet above the ground, what to say to Mang, the bat, when he disturbed him in the branches at midday, and how to warn the water snakes in the pools before he splashed down among them. None of the jungle people like being disturbed, and all are ready to fly at an intruder. Then, too, Mowgli was taught the stranger's hunting call, which must be repeated aloud until it is answered. Whenever one of the jungle people hunts outside his own grounds, it means, translated, give me leave to hunt here because I am hungry. And the answer is, hunt then for food, but not for pleasure. All this will show you how much Mowgli had to learn by heart, and he grew very tired of saying the same thing over a hundred times. But as Baloo said to Bagheera, one day when Mowgli had been cuffed and ran off in a temper, so Baloo hit him quite a bit. A man's cub is a man's cub, and he must learn all the law of the jungle. But think how small he is, said the Black Panther, who would have spoiled Mowgli if he had his own way. How can his little head carry all thy long talk? Is there anything in the jungle too little to be killed? No, that is why I teach him these things, and that is why I hit him very softly when he forgets. Softly? What dost thou know of softness, old iron feet? Bagheera grunted. His face is all bruised today by thy softness. Ah, better he should be bruised from head to foot by me who love him than he should come to harm through ignorance. Blue answered very earnestly. I am now teaching him the master words of the jungle that shall protect him with the birds and the snake people and all that hunt on four feet except his own pack. He can now claim protection if he will only remember the words from all in the jungle. Is not that worth a little beating. Well then look to it then that thou dost not kill the man-cub. He is no tree trunk to sharpen thy blunt claws upon. But what are those master words? I am more likely to give help than to ask it. Bagheera stretched out one paw and admired the steel blue rippling chisel talons at the end of it. Still, I should like to know. I will call Mowgli and he shall say them, if he will. Come, little brother. My head is still ringing like a bee tree, said a sullen little voice over their heads, and Mowgli slid down a trunk very angry and indignant, as he reached the ground. I come for Bagheera and not for thee, fat old Baloo. What a jab. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so they jab each other all the time. It's just so fun. That is all one to me, said Baloo, though he was hurt and grieved. Tell Bagheera then the master words of the jungle that I have taught thee today. Master words for which people, said Mowgli, delighted to show off. The jungle has many tongues. I know them all. A little thou knowest, but not much. See, O oh Bagheera, they never thank their teacher. Not one small woofling has ever come back to thank old blue for his teaching say the word for the hunting people then great scholar so he goes on to recite all these sayings of animals he can tweet like a bird hiss like a snake he can speak parcel tongue tongue, yes (laughs) i have three things to say so tabaki is actually a jackal not a hyena they call him one in the same second thing is Mm. i feel like baloo and bagheera are in a child custody agreement (laughs) they are they have to 
work together to raise this man cup. And the third thing I want to say is I love the mantra near the beginning about being able to see at night and having white teeth of fang. I would recite it as a mantra in the shower. So the one for the bears is, we be of blood, ye and I. And then he does a kite's whistle. A kite is a bird, right? Mm -hmm. They can understand the other creature's dialect because they are people of the jungle. But Mowgli is having to learn all this just as the wolf pups do. But the wolf pups, they just learn their own pack saying. And by that time, they're like, oh, we're done. We already yeah. know our part. I loved it. What a walk down memory lane. I know. I'm going to finish rereading it. I reread Ka's poem. Okay. I thought when he entered into the story, they speak about him in a slithering poem. Kind of oh, reminds me cool. of Peter and the Wolf. When every character comes on stage, they have a instrument as their theme. I went and saw a play the other day. It's called The Full Monty. It was a wild time. I have seen that as a movie. They flash you at the end. Yeah, they do. They're probably just wearing thongs, though. No. You saw the full peen? Well, they like, okay. (laughs) So, I, so, whatever Jill called to tell me about this thing, I was halfway awake because I was taking a fat nap. And I wake up to Jill and she's like, you need to get ready. My mom has these tickets for this play and there are dancing penises in it. There's what? I imagined inflatable dancing penises. Apparently that was not the case. It was men dancing with their peens out. No shit. Like this really (laughs) happened? Yeah. Whoa. So you have to be over 18 to enter? Yeah. Do you think all women had the front row seats? Or maybe gay men? A lot of people in there. Do you think their mothers got the front row seats so they can observe? There are people from Oklahoma sitting next to me and they were like yeah we're just having a night on the town and came to watch this show and I'm like <laughs> with their mom like it's like a girl and their mom and I'm like oh gosh. do you think that there's people that went and saw that show not knowing what it was fully about and then were uh, not expecting the full Monty at the end I was not expecting the full Monty at the end <laughs> I didn't know where that saying came from I used to work with a guy his name was Monty I'd always say <laughs> Give him the full Monty when you come. (laughs) (laughs) But you didn't know what it meant. Oh, I knew what it meant. I just didn't know where it came from. (laughs) Well, I think it's always been a phrase, and so the show is capitalizing on that phrase. Yeah, I think it's just based off of that. (laughs) They had thongs on, but then they came off. As they were coming off, they were backlit. They had their wings out and everything. Then all of a sudden, the backlights just cut off. So did you see anything or not? Yeah, I caught a glimpse. Was it cold in there? (laughs) (laughs) It was for some, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, I love that we went from snakes to peens. (laughs) To trouser snakes. Give them the full Monty. (laughs) So my book is called The Tale of Squirrel Nutkin by Beatrix Potter. This is a tale about a tale. A tale that belonged to a little red squirrel, and his name was Nutkin. He had a brother called Twinkleberry, and a great many cousins. They lived in a wood at the edge of a lake. In the middle of the lake, there is an island covered with trees and nut bushes, and amongst those trees stands a hollow oak tree, which is the house of an owl who is called Old Brown. One autumn, when the nuts were ripe and the leaves on the hazel bushes were golden and green, Nutkin and Twinkleberry and all the other little squirrels came out of the wood and down to the edge of the lake. They made little rafts out of twigs and they paddled away over the water to Owl Island to gather nuts. Each squirrel had a little sack. (laughs) 
and a large <laughs> oar and spread out his tail for a sail. They also took with them an offering of three fat mice as a present for old Brown and put them down upon his doorstep. Then Twinkleberry and the other little squirrels each made a low bow and said politely, Old Mr. Brown, will you favor us with permission to gather nuts upon your island? But Nutkin was excessively impertinent in his manners. He bobbed up and down like a little red cherry singing, Riddle me, riddle me, rot tot tote. A little wee man in a red, red coat. A staff in his hand and a stone in his throat. If you tell me this riddle, I'll give you a groat. <laughs> a, what? a what? A groat? What's G-R-O-A-T. I think it's like a rodent of some kind. Am I wrong? I wouldn't have been the wiser, but if I were you, I would have read it as I'll give you a grope and seen if anyone questioned you. A small sum. The hold kernels of various cereal grains, such as oat, wheat, rye, and barley. Okay, huh. that makes sense. Okay. Now this riddle is as old as the hills. Mr. Brown paid no attention whatever to Nutkin. He shut his eyes obstinately and went to sleep. The squirrels filled their little sacks with nuts and sailed away home in the evening. But next morning, they all came back again to Owl Island, and Twinkleberry and the others brought a fine fat mole and laid it on the stone in front of Old Brown's doorway and said, Mr. Brown, will you favor us with your gracious permissions to gather some more nuts? But Nutkin, who had no respect, began to dance up and down, tickling Old Mr. Brown with a nettle and singing, Old Mr. B, riddle me re, hitty pity within the wall, hitty pity without the wall. If you touch hitty pity, hitty pity will bite you. <laughs> Mr. Brown woke up suddenly and carried the mole into his house, so he's still just ignoring the squirrel. <laughs> he shut the door in Nutkin's face. Presently, a little thread of blue smoke from a wood fire came up from the top of the tree, and Nutkin peeped through the keyhole and sang, A house full, a hole full, and you cannot gather a bowl full. <laughs> <laughs> what an urchin. What is wrong? <laughs> The squirrels searched for nuts all over the island and filled their little sacks. But Nutkin gathered oak apples, yellow and scarlet, and sat upon a beech stump playing marbles and watching the door of old Mr. Brown, a.k.a. Mr. B. On the third day, the squirrels got up very early and went fishing. They caught seven fat minnows as a present for old Brown. They paddled over the lake and landed under a crooked chestnut tree on Owl Island. Twinkleberry and six other little squirrels each carried a fat minnow, but Nutkin, who had no nice manners, brought no present at all, he ran in front singing, The man in the wilderness said to me, How many strawberries grow in the sea? I answered him, As I thought good, as many red herrings as grow in the wood. But old Mr. Brown took no interest in riddles, not even when the answer was provided for him. On the fourth day, the squirrels brought a present of six fat beetles, which were as good as plums and plum pudding for old Brown. Each beetle was wrapped up carefully in a dock leaf fastened with a pine needle pin. But Nutkin sang as rudely as ever, Old Mr. B, riddle me re, flower of England, fruit of Spain, met together in a shower of rain, put in a bag, tied round with a string. If you tell me this riddle, I'll give you a ring. Which was ridiculous of Nutkin because he had not got any ring to give old Brown. <laughs> The other squirrels hunted up and down the nut bushes, but Nutkin gathered Robin's pin cushions off a briar bush and stuck them full of pine needle pins. On the fifth day, the squirrels brought a present of wild honey. It was so sweet and sticky that they licked their fingers as they put it down upon the stone. They had stolen it out of a bumblebee's nest on the tippity top of the hill, but Nutkin skipped up and down singing, hum a bum, buzz, buzz, hum a bum, buzz. As I went over Tippletine, I met a flock of bonnie swine, some yellow knacked, some yellow Backed. They were the very bonniest of swine. That ear went over tipple time. E apostrophe E-R. Old Mr. Brown turned up his eyes in disgust at the impertinence of Nutkin, but he ate up the honey. Reminds I'm in love with this owl. George Wilson <laughs> off Dennis the Menace. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> the squirrels filled their little sacks with nuts, but Nutkin sat upon a big flat rock and played nine pins with a crab apple and green fir cones. On the sixth day, which was Saturday, the squirrels came again for the last time. They brought a new laid egg in a little rush basket as a last parting present for Old Brown, but Nutkin ran in front, laughing and shouting, Humpty Dumpty lies in the beck with a white counterpane round his neck. Forty doctors and forty rights cannot put Humpty Dumpty to rights. Rights is W-R-I-G-H-T-S in the first mentioning. Now old Mr. Brown took an interest in eggs. He opened one eye and shut it again, but still he did not speak. Nutkin became more and more impertinent. Old Mr. B, old Mr. B, Hickamore Hackamore on the king's kitchen door. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't drive Hickamore Hackamore off the king's kitchen door. (laughs) (laughs) Nutkin danced up and down like a sunbeam, but still old Brown said nothing at all. Nutkin began again. Arthur O'Bower has broken his band. He comes roaring up the land. The king of Scots with all his power cannot turn Arthur of the Bower. Nutkin made a whirring noise to sound like the wind. He took a running jump right onto the head of old Brown. Gosh. Exclamation point dot dot dot. Then all at once there was a flutterment and a scufflement and a loud squeak. The other squirrels scuttered away into the bushes. When they came back very cautiously peeping around the tree, there was old Brown sitting on his doorstep quite still with his eyes closed as if nothing had happened, but Nutkin was in his waistcoat pocket. This looks like the end of the story, but it isn't. Old Brown carried Nutkin into his house and held him up by the tail, intending to skin him, but Nutkin pulled so very hard that his tail broke in two and he dashed up the staircase and escaped out of the attic window. And to this day, if you meet Nutkin up a tree and ask him a riddle, he will throw sticks at you and stamp his feet and scold and shout. Cuck, 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 curr, cuck. The end. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was a Christmas gift or something, but we had gotten a squirrel call. It reminds me of Morris Code, but you have this little thing and you're like, doot, doot. And certain calls mean certain things. It would really upset the squirrels. They would start chirping back at you and they'd fling their tails around wildly and they'd puff up. We loved talking to them. I think we were saying some real mean things to them. I think Squirrel Nutkin got what he deserved. I agree. He's just like that unsupervised child running around the neighborhood creating hell. Somebody lets their kid loose in a restaurant and they're running up and stealing food off of other people's plates. Do you think the owl was waiting for that moment or do you think Mm. it was impulse of the moment premeditated or not i think he took about as much as he could take i think it was just a build-up what do you think he did with his tail i would have hung it on the door as a warning a talisman don't be like nutkin i have a game of memory it was one of my first games ever and each card is i believe a character of this woman's stories in compilation and one of them was squirrel nutkin i believe he didn't have a tail so i'm like that must be it, especially when it's the foreshadowing of a tale about a tale. I don't know why, but it just <laughs> made me giggle so much. It's pretty funny. <laughs> it's pretty good. I just appreciate this owl called Old Brown. Old Mr. B. I just like his nonsensical <laughs> riddles. And then he's offering the owl these things. I got your ring. My favorite chant of his was the Humpty Dumpty. I thought it was very macabre and actually one of his darkest deliveries. I like the artwork. As far as I know, Beatrix Potter did all the artwork in her books. I want to share our five-star review. Please do. It's titled The Best Part of Hump by 
Andy Lee. I now have something to look forward to on Wednesdays. The conversations are so organic and magically they have a way to make you feel like you're in the room with them. I enjoy these conversations, even the side conversations. This is something I do often with my friends, so very easy for me to follow. Keep it up, ladies. You definitely have inspired me to pick up writing again. So as before, Andrew and Ashley, if I remember correctly, had made their entrance. We love those five-star reviews, and I'd like to grant Andy Lee a word of the day, quotidian, which is a daily occurrence or a daily ritual. Your quotidian cup of coffee. So that is your special word. You can email us at gwritersanon at gmail.com, and you can visit our Facebook page for upcoming episode teasers. You can just search ghostwriters, comma, anonymous. If you could have an animal word, mystical or otherwise, what would it be? Fluffy cat. <laughs> would it be any particular color? It would be the cat that I already have. Oh. <laughs> Light tan. I would be a dingo. I'd like a manatee, but that's just not practical. Um, oh, why? <laughs> because we live in a landlocked state. That doesn't mean anything. Wap share con with it. Waps him. Waps him in the face. Waps him. Waps him. Wap share con with it in the face. Wap share con with it. Waps him. Waps him in the face. Waps him. Waps him. Wap share con with it in the face. I think I might have misunderstood the assignment.